For business owners, what are some tips for approaching investors and raising Opportunity Zone capital? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And joining me on the show today is the CEO of Verte OZ, Len Mills. Len joins us from his office in College Park, Maryland. Len, welcome to the show. Hello, great to be here. Thanks for coming on, Len. Good to good to hear from you. So the the Verte OZ is not just another plain vanilla real estate fund. There's a somewhat unique angle to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and what makes it unique? Yeah, sure. So as you point out, it's not a real estate fund explicitly. In fact, it's uh, focused 100% on operating businesses. Um, It's a multi-asset fund. We want to build a diversified portfolio. Uh, We uh, also are trying to appeal to a fairly wide investor base. We interested clearly in investors with taxable capital gains, uh, but also we're interested in investors that may come from taxable accounts as well as, um, you know, tax deferred accounts like IRA and things like that. So it's a, it's a fairly diversified uh, uh, fund. Uh, that's, that's the intent, uh, both in terms of the types of investments, multi-asset, not real estate, but also in terms of the uh, investors. So it's, it's probably unique. In that aspect, I don't know exactly what all the other funds are doing, but I, I think that is somewhat unique. And tell us a little bit more about the fund itself and and what you're trying to accomplish with it, uh, the, the the goals that you have for it. Yeah, so it's it's operating businesses. That's the first goal. Uh, sometimes, and these would be typically small startup businesses, at least initially. Uh, you might think of them as venture capital. Uh, the goal is, again, to build a diversified portfolio. And the broad objectives of the fund are threefold. One is to develop this entrepreneurial ecosystem, uh, both within the fund, but even uh, with other companies outside the fund. Uh, We're also uh, very clearly interested in the social impact, and that's one of our primary objectives. And we're also very cognizant, and one of the objectives is around providing attractive returns to investors. And we don't think we have to compromise on any of those objectives, we think they're all mutually compatible, um, and that's the broad uh, strategies with respect to the fund. We're also um, what we're finding is some unique partnerships that we think are quite valuable to this effort. One set of partnerships is obviously with the local, state and local economic development and uh, agencies. We get a lot of good information, a lot of good deal flow from them. We also, uh, as part of the strategies, and given that we're primarily interested in relatively high growth companies, early stage high growth companies, we have a number of uh, uh, semi-formal partnerships, if you will, with respect to different universities across the country. Um, and so that's been another angle that we particularly like as, a, as part of the fund strategy. Good. Talk to me about the uh, that social impact objective. How do you do that exactly? How do you practically try to achieve that. Yeah, that's that's 
one of the very interesting aspects uh, of this Opportunity Zone um, program. The you know there's no formal reporting requirements. We do expect some formality to come out of that. But what we're doing now is we're uh, closely following the impact investing frameworks that are already out there. That would include the uh, U.S. Uh, impact Investing Alliance, uh, the Breck Center, and there's a number of these that, that pre-existed actually before the Opportunity Zone concepts. We're, we're following those general frameworks. Those frameworks uh, really operate at the fund level and the fund reporting level. So we plan to adhere to those principles and even uh, some of the reporting templates that have come out at that fund level. And then at the at the community level, which is really given our business orientation, is really focused about what the local businesses are doing uh, in their respective communities. Um, and for that, we've um, started using, uh, there's, a, there's a number of scorecards that are out there that we like. Um, and we think those scorecards, they ask very detailed questions that we, we help the business answer these questions. But the questions are about employment, uh, affordable housing, that's not really extremely relevant in what we're doing, uh, environment, uh, health uh, conditions, and, and, and fostering all of those dimensions. So there's a series of pointed questions. Um, and, you know, we sit across the table, we work through them. You ask practically, how do we do that? We, we work on it. And uh, with a small business, this is one of the, actually one of the challenges. Uh, they're not used to that um, and they have enough on their mind. However, um, by virtue of them being located in an opportunity zone or, um, or planning to move into a startup or, or move into an opportunity zone, they're, they're, they're generally aware. And it's actually a pretty uh, interesting and fruitful exercise working with them individually. So it's a lot of, I'll call it grassroots, uh, measurements and and awareness about what the objectives are. Going back to the state and local economic development groups, you know, they often have community-based objectives, uh, and we try to work that into that same conversation. Well, that's good. I think I think that measurement, some level of measurement and reporting, although not required by law or required by Treasury, at least not yet, uh, mm -hmm. it's going to prove to be important, at least in terms of public perception of the program. I think the public, the taxpayers, Congress is going to want to see how this incentive is actually being used. And if it's, if it's uh, living up to the congressional promises that were made, congressional intent. So good on you for, for doing some degree of measurement there. Yeah, we, we agree wholeheartedly. And, uh, and it's not just that other people might expect it or require it. We, we fundamentally believe it's an important aspect to the program and we when we talk to investors we we point that out and that's a point of emphasis for us well that's good uh len i want to back up for a minute here and get a little bit of your personal background story and um more to the point how did you first learn about opportunity zones and how did that lead you to develop this verte oz product well let's see uh Euphemistically, they call me experienced. So I've been, I've had a long path here and it, I've always been an investment manager, portfolio manager throughout my career. And most of the places along the way had some aspect, 
to public policy embedded in that that same investment. Now, these were all for-profit investments. Uh, however, uh, they had some aspect. And then in April of 2019 is when, and I was kind of watching the Opportunity Zones, but then in April of this year, um, they were real estate. I said, I'm kind of into the venture capital. But in April, when they came out with the second set of proposed rules, and there was a lot of business focus, you know, and while there's still some uncertain elements, there was enough certainty in it that I said, okay, this is good. We can go forward with this opportunity zone concept applied to small businesses or venture capital. Fast forward, you know, three or four months to get the fund documents and a lot of legal aspects and uh, get the auditors lined up, get everything kind of lined up. We literally just opened the fund to investors uh, earlier early in September. So it's been about a month that we've been open. Um, and that's how we got here. And that's where we are. And we're looking forward to ramping this up. Well, good. That's great. And yeah, quite, quite a bit of, uh, of experience there, as, as you mentioned at the outset. <laughs> uh, it sounds like you've done a lot throughout your career. And now you, you're doing some venture capital OZ investing. I think that's great. So uh, being a business fund now, Verte OZ, what are some of the biggest challenges for you? Well, there's some challenges in, as I mentioned, as I alluded to, there's definitely some challenges in managing the fund. Um, one one set of challenges there is, uh, you know, you you want these companies to be successful, uh, but there's going to be companies that are, you know, that may end up being not successful, uh, and that's the nature of small businesses. That's understood. Um, so that presents a, a particular set of challenges. The other set of challenges, I think with respect to small businesses in particular uh, on their side is there's not a tremendous, in the general scheme, there's not a tremendous amount of awareness. Now, I think by virtue of, of this particular podcast, I imagine some of the, everyone here is probably aware of opportunity zones on this podcast, but as a general matter, there's not that much awareness, especially amongst small businesses. And this includes small businesses that are already in opportunity zones. They just don't know they're in in one or they're considering moving and they don't. The opportunity zone thing is not the first thing that they think about. Um, and and then when they hear about it and when we start talking about it, they have a lot on their mind. Right. They're getting their business started. They have enough worries about that. They're clearly looking for capital, which that's how we sort of meet each other. Um, but their initial reaction is a bit like, oh, this is going to be extra work. And, and, and it is. But what we try to do is mentor them through that, guide them through that process, and actually shoulder some of that burden. We, we talked about the reporting requirements earlier. Um, you know, we've got a, a framework and a process around that that we think will ease that. And it's really interesting, actually, when you when you sit across the table and you start talking about those questions that I mentioned earlier, a light bulb goes off and say, hey, you're right. You know, we are in an opportunity zone. And, and, and in many cases, this is why we're moving here. They just didn't piece it together. So one of the, again, one of the challenges is really about education uh, that we're finding on the ground that uh, just getting the awareness out there and 
you know, asking or not asking, but just making people aware of the opportunity zones both from a opportunity perspective, because it is going to bring capital. And clearly that's what these small businesses are looking for. But there's also opportunities to making a real impact. And I think most of the, even though it's a challenge, most of the small business owners really latch onto that once they are aware of it. Right. Yeah. That's a theme that keeps coming up on this podcast, interestingly enough, from, from all angles too, is uh, the, that theme of education. Uh, I, I, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act mm-hmm. being enacted into law by President mm-hmm. Trump, but uh, we're still, it still feels like it's early in the game in terms of getting people up to speed on on what this incentive is and what it can do. There's there's a lot of education that's needed. Yeah. Now, if, if you're listening to this podcast, and you are, clearly, uh, mm-hmm. good for you. You're kind of ahead of the game there, especially if you're a business owner or an entrepreneur seeking Opportunity Zone Capital. You're aware of this program at least somewhat, or you wouldn't be listening. Um, right. So, Len, for, for those listeners, for that, for that segment of our audience who may be an entrepreneur or a business owner and maybe they're in an opportunity zone or they're considering moving into an opportunity zone or starting up a new business in an opportunity zone and they're looking for some OZ capital, what is your advice to them? What are some best practices that they should follow for getting in front of investors and fund sponsors like yourself and, and raising capital? Well, there's lots of advice about, you know, how to uh, approach investors, um, you know, and, uh, Many, much of that advice is, you know, make sure everything's polished and buttoned down. If, if you go on the internet, you'll read things like that. Make sure your pitch deck is perfect. I actually find it, it's beneficial to start early and often with investors. Now, investors, you know, you have to, you know, have a, some thick skin there because a lot of investors will, will sort of, sort of give you the cold shoulder, but, uh, you should approach them anyway, and you should uh, the ones that are that are uh, willing to talk, and we're one of those. I'll point that out. Little plug. Uh, you know, don't worry too much about having the perfect deck. Don't worry about having all your financials in perfect. All your these are all projections anyway, but having all your financials in perfect order. Um, I think it, for us, it's actually much more important that we understand the people, um, no matter what business plan they come, people come with, it's pretty much certain that as the business unfolds, that business plan is going to change. So adaptability of the people, uh, the management or the founders, the owners, um, adaptability and, and, and being able to demonstrate that adaptability and being able to execute uh, under changing circumstances. Because you don't know what exactly what the market is, exactly what your manufacturing process or whatever it may be is, is going to end up. Because again, these are early stage companies. So it's actually it's in, as important to demonstrate your capability uh, to adapt. And the only way to really do that is, as I mentioned earlier, Talk early and often, and it's okay if you change your mind and you say, you know what, we thought about that, uh, you know, in the last time we talked, I don't know, a month ago or three weeks ago, now we're doing this. Uh, there's no shame in that. In fact, that is, uh, that's to be expected. So my biggest 
advice is get out there early and 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 don't worry too much about having everything uh, buttoned up. I think that's a little counter to what you might see on the internet and some of that advice, but or talking to people. But that that kind of advice is typically for uh, more mature, I would say more mature companies or companies that are going to Silicon Valley investors or, or, or that uh, vehicle. I think at this grassroots level where we're dealing with very local uh, entrepreneurs, um, uh, it's, it's okay to be local and it's okay to be friendly and it's okay to, to uh, adapt uh, as you go along. We actually encourage that. Yeah, it sounds like it's okay to reach out for ideas too. I mean, you may, yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. you're a business owner and you may have one idea in mind and you don't have it perfect yet. You want to go to the investors and see what they yeah. think. The investors may have and, some good ideas for you too sometimes. Right. And that, that goes back to one of our objectives, which is this entrepreneurial ecosystem. We want to encourage that. And uh, there's a lot of innovate uh, incubators and accelerators that are out there. And, and they're also trying to encourage that, that reaching out, that development um, and that's, it's the same spirit here on the fun side. Yeah. So in, in, in that regard, you actually don't want everything to be too figured out and too perfect and, and too rigid. You want to, you want to get out there early enough so that, uh, you can, you can right. show, you can demonstrate your propensity for some flexibility and some, some mm -hmm. potential changes down the road. I think that's, I think that's good advice. Okay. So you, Len, you touched upon this a, a little bit, a couple minutes ago already, but, uh, I wanted you to talk about the the unpredictability of i guess these these two concepts that are kind of in contrast with each other one being the re required holding period to achieve mm -hmm. the oz incentive you know the mm -hmm. 10 year holding period and then the the unpredictability of 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 holding periods when it comes to venture capital investing um how, right. how do you how do you talk a little bit more about that and and how you handle that yeah. So this is actually, this is another one of the challenges, not so much challenges for the individual businesses, but this is definitely a challenge at the fund level. And the way we think about it is it's, uh, and this is where some of my experience actually is helpful. Uh, the way at least I think about it is a, it's a, it's a big asset liability uh, management problem. Uh, what we end up, if we execute on this plan, we'll end up with a, a whole bunch Thirty or so uh, small assets, small positions. Uh, meanwhile, we have some technically not liabilities, but some uh, considerations that we need to think about on the investor side uh, simultaneously. And those considerations are about, well, first of all, a ten-year hold. We are very clear with our investors that this is this is a long-term investment. That's the nature of the program. That's the nature of the tax incentives. Uh, so. But we always have to bear in mind that there is some time that we, the investors will want their money back uh, and more. So, uh, you know, we want to keep that in mind as we're thinking about this uh, asset liability management problem that I had, that I've referred to before. And of course, there's also how do you handle distributions and then what, what's, what's income and what's capital gains? And, you know, is that going to be a triggering event uh, for the deferral and, and all kinds of things like that? So it's a very, very complex problem. So how do we deal with it? We deal with it in a, in a, in a few ways. Uh, one way is, now bear with me, I'll kind of drop into some uh, statistical lingo here. 
is what I would call the, the law of large numbers. So we're going to have a large portfolio, you know, relatively small positions, but large in number of assets. As I mentioned earlier, 30 companies. And while we cannot exactly predict how each company will exit or what the timing of that is exactly, uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about that for each individual company. Uh, and, you know, the, the hope that is that when we analyze it, we'll get it mostly right or mostly close on average. Uh, you know, in the, uh, you know, there's going to be some distribution, some, un, some uh, unpredictability around that, but we'll hopefully get it right across all this, uh, all these firms. And that's basically the principle of a diversified uh, portfolio. And the other thing we're doing on the timing in particular, if you think about venture capital, you know, people talk about seven, eight years as sort of an expected exit, especially on an early stage company, which is what we'll initially be doing. We're going to tilt the portfolio to be a little bit longer than that in recognition of the 10-year hold, again, on average. Um, and then what will happen over time as we manage the portfolio is, and we do get some exits, we will naturally uh, shorten up that, we'll probably take bigger investments then, make bigger investments then, but then also shorten up that expected uh, life. So towards the end, you know, it may be that we want an exit in three or five years, and that's what we'll sort of uh, engineer. Um, and then there's challenges within what that means to the investor. So that's that's inside the fund. All of that discussion is inside the fund. Um, the other thing that about unpredictability that I didn't mention inside the fund is with venture capital or small businesses, it's it's unfortunate uh, but true that many of these small businesses uh, will fail. And failure in venture capital kind of means one of two things. One is a traditional business failure where they literally go out of business. Um, you know, and that happens, uh, not hopefully not too frequently. Uh, but from a venture capital perspective, another failure is if you don't make any money uh, and you get your money back. That would be in venture capital world, that's considered a failure as well. But then you hope in that distributional sense to get uh, uh, a third or some fraction of companies that do well. And some of them, Everybody hears the press about these really big ones, but many, many companies do well. Um, not all, but but many do well. And the idea is to, uh, again, by virtue of having a diversified portfolio, is to spread out that risk. You're not unlike a single asset fund. Uh, you know, we're multi assets, so we're we're spreading out that risk. Now, on the investor side, those distribution or those exits, you know can cause, and we're very clear about this with the investors, um, uh, you know, that may result in some dividend income, we're, we're organized as a C-Corp, some dividend income flowing through to the investors before the 10-year uh, hold. Um, and uh, that's that's kind of a tail. I talked about the mean of the distribution. If everything goes according to the the average, then we're fine. If we, there's two types of tail events. One is the fund is terribly bad. There are no capital gains. Uh, obviously, we don't like to talk about that, but we don't, in some sense, we don't worry about that. On the success side, if we have some exorbitant returns, 
um, you know, and we and given the way the law is currently written, there may be some changes here, but given the way the law is currently written, that may result in um, current income to the investors, uh, depending on what type of uh, gain it is. Um, and that's it, it's it may be bad from a tax perspective, but that event would be good from an investment perspective. Um, you'd still get nice return. If you had those really unusual events um, and people got paid, even if they had to pay the taxes, uh, that that was probably an okay outcome. It's so, a good problem to have, right? It's a good problem to have. That's a good way to phrase it. And so we're very, when we talk to the investors, we also uh, you know make them aware that we may be make, making uh, distributions that are taxable to them. Um, and that is a good problem to have. Uh, but our, our overall goal is to stretch this out, as I mentioned earlier. And what happens in the case of, I'm not talking about dividend income here. I'm talking about a uh, one of these businesses within the fund uh-huh. exits after mm-hmm. a, a handful of years, before the 10-year mark. Uh, and you have, you, w- what do you end up doing with uh, with the with the cash from well, that, we would, that exit, do you distribute yeah. it or do you reinvest yeah. it or what, how do you, how do you handle that? Yeah. And what does it mean for the well, investor? We, in the early years, we would reinvest uh, the initial investment. The, um, you know, uh, we would reinvest. Uh, we, you know, again, we may end up having to create some some income in the form of dividends um, if it's excess. We do plan to for many, many years, uh, plan to reinvest the entire proceeds. It depends on whether we can find investments to, to plow back into. Uh, but again, uh, it, it's a good problem to have. We may end up having to have some distributions um, before then. Um, but our general principle is to reinvest up through year seven or thereabouts. Um, and then start, and then we'll park some money in cash uh, and start to think about the longer term exits in year 10 with the possibility of some extensions out to year 12. Gotcha. That, that, I think that makes sense. So if a, if a, if one of these businesses inside of the fund, let's say sells and you have a, you have a $10 million gain event from, from mm-hmm. the sale within the fund, you could, mm-hmm. you're saying you could reinvest that $10 million gain within the fund and that wouldn't affect the holding period of the of the investors at the investor level, or you could or you could distribute that uh, yeah. as income to the investors. But then would that be would that be taxed as ordinary income, or would it be considered yeah. capital gain to the investors? Yeah. So uh, no, I think that would be treated as ordinary income. Okay. So then, they, uh, so then that would that would be taxable, and they would not be able to roll that over into a new OZ investment because it would just be ordinary yeah. income. Okay. I think there's. I think there's some, yes. I mean, that's the way we're currently planning it. I do think there may get some more, this is one area that I think may get some more clarity. I don't know how soon, um, because I think the natural thing to do would, would actually allow that to be rolled inside the fund. Um, but if, I, if there's an investment like, that you can identify within the yeah, fund, right? So right. But that's, that, this is an uncertain area yes. right now. Yes. Um, uh, and so what you asked me how we're going to deal with it, 
I mean, we're just going to have to deal with it as it unfolds over time. I don't know how else to phrase it. No, and, I think, uh, and I think, I think that's an acceptable answer because the I think you're still waiting on a little bit more clarity from from the IRS also on on this issue, and and, um, and it depends what you're able to identify at that point in time, what the economy is doing, what uh, it depends on a lot of factors. I understand that. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think the, I like the way you phrase it. Actually. Good problem to have, right? Um, yeah, I, I don't mean to grill you too much about this because if if one of your investments within the fund has a has a big exit and creates a a sizable return for your investors, that that's great. It's just we're just talking about the problem of of paying taxes now, which is uh, we don't want to let the, uh, that that tail wag the dog too much. Exactly. There's a little bit too much focus on the tax angle, in, in my opinion. I mean, I think tax angle is definitely a, a big incentive. Uh, however, you know, if, if there are taxes that are paid on successes, both at the community level and uh, at the investor level, again, that's a good problem to have. So that's the way we're positioned. Yep. Oh, I agree with you 100%. More about your fund specifically now. Maybe it's a little bit too early to be asking you these types of questions. I know you guys just launched this thing back in September, but what, what is your target raise and, and how much do you expect to deploy? By the end of the year, yeah. So we're uh, targeting fifty million um, in terms of the end of the year. You know, uh, I would hope I, I view this as really a multi-year program. Also, um, I, um, I think we'll get probably around ten or twenty uh, would be my expectation. We have a little bit uh, that we've already gotten in and we already actually deployed. Um, so, you know, we're on pace, I guess, for that uh, end-year goal of ten to twenty million. Uh, the 50 million target, and we'll probably have to, you know, bump up our price next year. But um, the 50 million target would be, you know, a longer term uh, goal. Probably, I don't think everything's going to happen in 2019. I think it is going to. It's uh, the the extra five uh, percentage points in in the step up is some incentive, um, but it's not a, a huge incentive. And I think people don't want to rush. Uh, at least that's my experience so far. Um, and so as a consequence, this is also, it's not just 2019. I think 2020 is going to matter too. I agree with you hundred percent. I, I think there is um, some sense of urgency here uh, at the end of 2019, because, you know, the, the, the story is, you know, the, the, this is your last year to obtain the full tax benefit of this incentive. But I, th I think you're absolutely right. It's only, you're missing out on five percentage points of step up if you if you if you if you miss the end of this year. At the end of the day, that's that's kind of small potatoes when you think about how big the uh, right. tax benefit could be on the back end. Being able yeah, to it's really the back end capital gains exactly exactly. So yeah. um, you know, twenty twenty one, you've got another twenty four months to to get that ten percent basis step up still, and then. Even when that goes away, honestly, I mean, being able to defer the taxes out till 2026 is is still a good benefit, and that that, that back end exclusion, yeah, you're with me there. I that that that's that's the real big one, and that's that's yeah. sticking around for another seven years. And, still. That, and I think that's especially true in the venture capital space. It's mostly the back end that, that we hope to get that gain. Yeah, and so that's why we view it as a, as you pointed out, it's I mentioned 2020, but you know, I, we're we're approaching this as a a, a and we also talk a little bit about you have to line up the investors and the investments at the same time. That's another aspect of the legislation, roughly, um, at the fund level. Uh, 
And so as a consequence of that, it's I just feel it's going to be much more of a gradual process. Find some investors, find some investments, and it's going to span. Uh, it would not surprise me in your example. Yeah, if we go out to 2021 or 2022, even in our fund, you know, we do have, you know, some consideration to the early investors, so we wouldn't go out forever. Uh, that's not the way we're set up. We, we do want to uh, start to have some exits. However, you know, I do view this, at, at least in the early years here, it's it's a traditional, you know, multi-year investment ramp. And in this case, uh, investors ramp, um, because again, the, the alignment of the two. So yeah. whether it's 2021 or 20. 20, I, you know, I don't know all of that uh, yet. That'll, that'll unfold over time. Uh, but I, I, I certainly don't think it's a 2019 only uh, phenomenon. I agree. I agree 100%. Um, makes perfect sense. You mentioned a few minutes ago that, uh, you know, despite how young your fund is, how you just, you just launched it uh, just a few weeks back, you've already uh, succeeded in raising some capital in and deploying some capitals. Can you, can you tell me some of the businesses that you have invested in to date or that you're getting uh, close on closing deals mm -hmm. with? Yeah. So there's two um, that we, one's closed and one's imminent. Uh, I don't know exactly when this is going to air, but, but I'll talk about both. Um, the uh, first one when they closed uh, just this week, by the way, uh, so it's all, again, fairly fresh, is a uh, very interesting um, setup companies, actually, that are involved in uh, opportunity zones on Native American lands. They're called tribal lands. And uh, those, uh, what's really unique about those is that those uh, tribal communities are basically sovereign nations. And so they have... Uh, their own set of laws. They, they are in opportunity zones, but they have their own set of laws. And that creates some really interesting investment opportunities. Um, uh, and, and these are clearly uh, uh, going to bring jobs and, and, and a lot of community benefits as well. So uh, one set of businesses is around uh, sort of a technical um, thing with respect to climate change, which is around uh, what are called carbon offsets you're able to do is by uh, scientifically managing the forest that you may have, you can uh, engineer the maturity of the trees and grasslands and things to uh, take in more, take in more carbon dioxide. And then those, as you take in more, you can sell those offsets to people that need those offsets. And, and, and there's a growing need for these offsets because there's uh, this general trend towards worldwide, uh, but particularly uh, in some areas, to um, uh, reduce carbon emissions. And so um, these, these aren't technically reducing them, but it does uh, give uh, economic incentives. As you produce these carbon offsets, you can then sell them to other people, basically. And the other is around logistics. Uh, the um, many of these uh, tribal lands are very uh, strategically uh, located, uh, particular types of supply logistics, and, and that generates a lot of jobs. Um, so that's another interesting business dimension on that particular set of investments. Um, the other investment we're doing is a more traditional. Um, 
Oh, and I, I should point out one of the other strategies that we look for um, that's been you know, very helpful with the uh, economic development uh, um, agencies that I mentioned before. Oftentimes there's some kind of public um, money that's effectively being able to leverage the investment. So, and that's certainly the case with more, it's more foundational money, but, but on the other hand, it's still the same principle about being able to leverage the investments. Again, because everyone has this community uh, benefit uh, aspect in mind or concern in mind. And the other one's a more traditional uh, biotech uh, company. Can't go into too many details about that, um, but there is some, in, um, well mentioned, there is some economic incentives to sort of leverage our investment, that one as well. Um, and, um, you know, that one's fairly close. Good. It sounds like you guys are off to a good start already. What And what, what types of businesses are in your pipeline that you're looking at? I know you are targeting about 30 companies that you want to yeah. fund with, but uh, what, you know, what, what types of business are you looking at? What types of industries are these businesses in? Are there specific locations you're targeting? We're, we're trying not to be too specific right now. We think that, that some of that specificity may develop over time as we uh, develop this uh, ecosystem. I will say, though, that the uh, we're looking for growth um, and, uh, you know, the growth businesses come from growth and businesses come from either one of two things. One is it's a just a, a growing macro trend of some type. Um, uh, you know, it could be uh, co-working or it could be, you know, any sort of broad macro economic trend that you see and that's generating the growth and there's people that have certain advantages uh, in that. Um, and the other one is, uh, you know, then in the existing market, some type of disruption uh, that we would look for, some kind of disruptor. Uh, typically, that would involve a lot of intellectual property uh, of some type. Uh, so we, we spend a lot of time on those dimensions, and they, they tend to be sort of uh, you know, not traditional technology, but more uh, technology adopters um, is the way that these disruptions typically happen. And we had a, we had another fund before this, and that was, uh, you know, the general strategy, sort of technology adopters, I would call them. Um, it, but that could be applied to lots of different industries. Uh, it could be fintech, ag tech, you know, all the techs. Um, and, and that's you know, given our expertise um, and given sort of the investor uh, appetite as it develops, um, I, you know, I, I imagine that's going to be the the mandate that that naturally grows over time. We we do want to be uh, cognizant of the investor interest too. So that's it's actually kind of in some sense it's nice to to have to walk both sides of the street with the investors and the investments, and and you're kind of in the middle as a matchmaker. And um, you know, so we're we're a little bit of a blank sheet of paper, and we're, we're going to let that evolve over time. At the moment, it's uh, except for the two that I mentioned, uh, we have no specific geographies in mind. We have no specific uh, industries in mind, except for the general principles around uh, the growth, communities, uh, and the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And I think the combination of those three will sort of naturally guide the uh, where the portfolio ends up. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And kind of gets back to your earlier comments on advice for entrepreneurs or business owners seeking capital. You want to you want to stay flexible, and it sounds like you guys are are doing just that. Uh, well, Len, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Uh, before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Verte OZ? Okay, great. Yeah. So the website is www.verteoz.com. Um, that'll get you started. Uh, we have a LinkedIn account uh, or LinkedIn uh, business called Verte OZ as well. You can look us up there and follow us. Um, and uh, both of those. Uh, access have all of our contact information. So if you get that far, please feel free to reach out and uh, reach out to us directly. Um, and uh, we'll get back to you and, and eager to hear from you. Perfect. And for our listeners out there today, I'll have show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And you'll find links to all of the resources that Len and I discussed on today's show. And I'll be sure to link to verteoz.com and to the verteoz LinkedIn page. Len, again, thank you for the time today. Thanks for coming on the show. It was great chatting with you. Thank you, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.